Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash nocturnal. Gigantic Productions, in association with Empty Set Entertainment, presents Nocturnal, a novel by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. For Bird Level, who makes things happen. For Julian Pavia, and the amazing job he did helping me make this novel what it is. And for A. Kovacs, who keeps me sane. Book One, People. Chapter One, Penance. You're not welcome here, Paul. Most places in the world, a statement like that sounded normal. Unfriendly, perhaps, but still common, still acceptable. Most places, but not at a Catholic church. But someone's following me, Paul said, and it's cold out. Paul's eyes flicked left, flicked right, too fast to take anything in. He looked haunted. That wasn't Father Esteban Rodriguez's problem. This man, if he could be called that, would never again be allowed in the Cathedral of St. Mary of the Assumption. Never again. You've been told, Esteban said. You're not part of this church anymore. Paul's eyes narrowed, cleared. For a moment Esteban saw a glimmer of the wit that had made Paul so popular, so engaging. What about forgiveness? Paul said. That's what we're all about. Forgiveness of our sins? Or are you better than our Savior? Esteban felt rage, a rare emotion, and quickly fought to bring it under control. I am only a man, he said. Perhaps a weak one at that. Maybe the Lord can forgive you your sins, but I can't. You may not seek shelter here. Paul looked down. He shivered. Esteban shivered too. San Francisco's evening chill, a wet, clinging thing, rolled through the church door that Esteban blocked with his body. Paul wore a sagging blue coat that had once probably been puffy and shiny. Maybe it had looked nice on the original owner, whomever that might be, however many years ago that was. Paul's pants were dirty, not caked with filth, but spotted here and there with finger streaks of food, grease, other things. Years ago, this man had helped care for the homeless. Now he looked like one of them. I have nowhere to go, Paul said to the ground. That is not the church's problem. That is not my problem. I'm a human being, Father. Esteban shook his head. This disgusting, demonic creature before him thought himself human? You don't belong here. You're not wanted here. This is a sanctuary. One doesn't let wolves in among the sheep. Why don't you go somewhere you do belong? If you don't leave, I'll call the police. Paul looked away, down the street. He seemed to be searching for something. Something 
specific, something that wasn't there. I told the police, Paul said. Told them someone was following me. What did they say? Paul looked Esteban in the eyes. Pretty much the same thing you did, father. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap, Esteban said. Hell has a special place for people like you. Leave. Now. Sadness filled Paul's eyes. Desperation. Despair. Perhaps the final understanding that this part of his life was over. Paul looked beyond Esteban, through the door to the church interior. The look of sadness changed to one of longing. Paul had spent many years in this very building. Those days were gone forever. Paul turned and walked down the church's wide steps. Esteban watched him reach the sidewalk of Gough Street, then cross and continue down O'Farrell. Esteban shut the door. Paul Maloney hunched his shoulders high, tried to burrow his ears into his coat. He needed a hat. So cold out at night. Wind drove the fog, a fog thick enough that you could see wisps of it at eye level. He walked down O'Farrell Street, home to strip clubs, drug dealers and whores, an asphalt swath of sin and degradation. Part of him knew he belonged here. Another part, an older part, wanted to scream and yell. Tell all these sinners where they would go unless they took Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The gall of Father Esteban. Hell has a special place. Maybe for Esteban. Maybe for men like him who purported to preach the word when they didn't even understand it. God loved Paul Maloney. God loved everyone. Someday, Paul would stand by his side. It would be Esteban who would feel the fires. Esteban and the others who had kicked Paul out of the only life he'd ever known. Paul turned left on Jones Street. Where would he go? He had a constant churning need for human contact that continued to surprise him. Not the type of contact that had changed his life, just the normal act of a kind word, a conversation, a connection. He'd spent so many years in the church, so many years in front of a steady stream of people. Even during the long periods of study, of contemplation. His isolation was self-imposed. People were always a few rooms away. There was always someone out there to talk to if he so chose. But for the past couple of years, no one had wanted to talk to Paul Maloney. He had to be careful everywhere he went. Some of the sinners around here would pass judgment with their fists and feet. Two in the morning. People were still on the street, especially in this part of town, but not many. No kids out at this hour. A shame. Behind him, a noise. The sound of metal scraping lightly against brick. Paul whirled. No one there. His heart hammered. He'd turned, thinking he would see the man with the shaggy black beard and the green John Deere ball cap. How many times had Paul seen that man in the past week? Four? Maybe five? Please, Heavenly Father. Don't let that man be a parent. The sound came again. Paul turned so fast he stumbled. What had made that scraping noise? A pipe? Maybe some bag lady pushing a cart with a broken wheel? He looked for the bearded man, but the bearded man wasn't there. 
Paul put his cold hands on his face. He rubbed hard, trying to shake away the fear. How had it come to this? He hadn't done anything wrong. Not really. He just loved so much. And now this was his life. One foot in front of the other, walking through loneliness until he died. I must be strong, he said. I will fear no evil because you are with me. By a whisper of air behind him, the sound of something heavy falling, the slap of shoe soles against damp concrete. Paul started to turn, but before he could see what it was, strong hands locked onto his shoulders. Chapter 2 Good Morning, Sunshine As the sun rose, the shadows crawled along the streets of San Francisco, shrinking away into the buildings that spawned them. Brian sat on the ledge of his apartment building's roof, watching the dawn. Bathrobe, boxers, a cup of coffee, feet dangling six stories above the sidewalk below, a little slice of the good life. He loved his daily rooftop ritual, but normally his work ended with the rising sun. At dawn, Brian Clouser usually went to sleep. He rarely had to work the day shift, a perk of both his seniority and the fact that few other people wanted to pursue murder investigations from eight at night until four in the morning. His beloved night shift would have to wait, however. The Oblomowitz case had stagnated, and Chief Amy Zhao had to show some kind of movement or the press would eat her alive. When a local loaded businessman is found floating in three separate barrels in the San Francisco Bay, the media wants answers. Zhao would masterfully ration pieces of information, steadily feeding the media hounds what they wanted to hear until those hounds gradually lost interest and moved on to the next story. Zhao had a press conference playbook so predictable that the cops she commanded had labeled the steps. Step one, gather information but don't make assumptions. Then step two, put our senior people on the case. She had already moved past step three, creation of a multidisciplinary task force, and sailed headlong into the media-pleasing step four, assign additional resources. In this instance, additional resources meant pulling in the night shift guys. Zhao gave orders to Jesse Shero, the homicide department captain, and Shero gave orders to Brian. So, day shift it was. Brian scratched at his short, dark red beard and his hands came away wet. Sometimes he forgot to dry that off. It was getting a little long. Not too bad yet, but he'd have to trim it in a day or two or his look would slide from casually cool to newly homeless. He pulled his black terry cloth robe a little tighter. Chilly up here. He sipped his coffee and looked north to his view of San Francisco Bay. Not much of a view, really. A postage stamp-sized space at the far end of Laguna that showed a strip of blue water, then the dark mass of Angel Island, and beyond that, the faraway, starry light twinkling of sleepy Tiburon. He couldn't even see the iconic Golden Gate Bridge from here. Too many taller buildings in the way. Views were for the rich. Cops don't get rich. Not the clean ones, anyway. People called his job homicide inspector, but that wasn't how it felt to Brian. He didn't inspect. He hunted. He hunted murderers. It was his life, his reason for being. Whatever might be missing from his world, those things faded away when the hunt began. As corny as it sounded, this city was his home, and he was one of its protectors. He'd been born here, 
but his dad had moved around during Brian's childhood and teenage years. Indianapolis for grade school, Atlanta and junior high, Detroit for his freshman and sophomore years. Brian had never really felt at home anywhere, not until they moved back to the city for his junior year in high school. George Washington High. Good times. From his robe pocket, his cell phone sounded the tone of an incoming two-way message. He didn't have to check who it was, because only his partner used that feature. Brian raised the phone to his ear and thumbed the two-way button. I'm ready. No, you're not. You're probably up on your roof drinking coffee. No, I'm not. Brian said, then took a sip. You probably aren't even dressed. Yes, I am. You're an LLWTL. Pookie and his made-up acronyms. What the hell is an LLWTL? A lying liar who tells lies. It puts on the clothes or it gets the horn again. Brian drained the coffee mug and set it on the ledge to his left. Three other mugs were already sitting there. He made a mental note to grab them the following night. He usually didn't bother with the orphaned mugs until there were five or six sitting there like a little ceramic calendar marking the last time he'd bothered to clean up after himself. He hurried to the fire escape and started down to his apartment. If he wasn't down on the street by the time Pookie's Buick rolled up, the man would lean on the horn until Brian came out. Brian's neighbors just loved Pookie Chang. The damp metal steps felt cold on Brian's bare feet. Two flights down, he reached the narrow landing just outside his kitchen window and climbed inside. His kitchen was so small you couldn't fit two people in there and open the fridge at the same time. Not that he ever had two people in the kitchen. Six months he'd lived in the one bedroom, and he still hadn't unpacked most of his boxes. Brian dressed quickly. Black socks, black pants, and a black t-shirt. His black Bianchi tuxedo holster came next, followed by a nylon forearm knife sheath. He scooped up his weapons from his coffee table. Tomahawk tactical fighting knife for the forearm sheath. Sog Twitch XL folding knife, clipped inside the pants to the left of the crotch. Hidden from sight, but within easy reach. Six-hour P226 in the holster. The SFPD issued the forty caliber version to the entire force. It wouldn't have been his first choice for a main weapon, but that's what they gave you, and that's what you carried. The shoulder holster was equipped with two additional magazine pouches and a small handcuff holster. Brian dutifully filled these as well. Where a lot of cops carried a backup piece in an ankle holster, Brian wanted the full effect of an onion field gun, a gun that might be missed by perps should he be taken hostage. His was a tiny C-Camp LWS-32, a thirty-two caliber pistol so small it fit in an imitation wallet and slid into his back left pants pocket. He'd actually been a hostage once, been at the mercy of a perp who'd missed several days of meds, Brian never wanted to experience anything like that ever again. He shrugged on a black hoodie and zipped it up, hiding his holster from sight. As he slid past still-packed moving boxes and out his apartment door, he heard the faint, steady sound of a car horn. What an asshole. Brian skipped every other stair as he shot down four flights to the old-school lobby, sneakers slapping against chipped marble floors. Right out front was Pookie's shit-brown Buick, double-parked completely blocking a lane. Passing cars honked, but if Pookie could hear them over his own car's horn, he didn't pay any attention. After six years together as partners, Brian knew Pookie's attitude all too well. Pookie was a cop. What was someone going to do, give him a ticket? 
Brian shot out the door onto the sidewalk and around the Buick. As usual, a stack of beat-up manila folders filled the passenger seat. Pookie Chang did not believe in technology. Brian scooped up the teetering mass, held it in his lap as he sat and shut the door. Hey, Pooks. Brian reached across and patted Pookie's belly. Did the Buddha like his donuts this morning? We can't all have the metabolism of a hummingbird, Pookie said as he pulled into traffic on Vallejo Street. The choo-choo don't run without some coal in the engine. And Buddha? I could have internal affairs bring you up on racial intimidation charges for that. How would you like it if I called you a potato-eating McBastard? Klauser is a German name, genius. Pookie laughed. Yeah, all those members of the master race have red hair and green eyes, just like you. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Brian shrugged. Dark red. Irish have bright red. I'm German through and through, going back three generations. Besides, oh sensitive one, I was talking about your big Buddha belly, not your slanty eyes. Slanty eyes? Oh yeah, that's so much more politically correct. And I'm not fat, I'm big boned. I remember when you bought that coat, Brian said. Four years ago, you could button it then. Can you button it now? Pookie turned south on Van Ness, then cut across two lanes of traffic for no apparent reason. Brian automatically pressed his feet to the floor and grabbed the door handle. He heard honks and a few screeches as drivers quickly hit their brakes. We Chicagoans like to eat. You have your tofu and bean sprouts, Cali boy. I'll keep my brats and bear claws. Besides, the ladies love my belly. That's why in our cop show, you're the brooding, misunderstood, tough guy rebel. I'm the pretty one that gets the babes. In the grander, hot or not scale, I'm ranked like 900 levels above you. That's a lot of levels. Pookie nodded. Most assuredly. How's the script coming? Pookie's latest hobby was writing something called a series Bible for a police show. He had never acted a day in his life, never been involved in show business, but that didn't slow him down in the least. He attacked everything in life the same way he attacked a buffet. Pookie shrugged. So-so. I thought a cop drama would write itself. Turns out not so much. But don't worry. I licked it like I licked your mom. Name the show yet? Yeah, listen to this. Midnight Shield. How's that sit in your mouth? Like bad sushi, Brian said. Midnight Shield? Really? Yeah, because the characters are cops like us, and they work the overnight shift, and... I get the wordplay, Pooks. It's not that I don't understand it. It just sucks. 
The fuck you know about entertainment? Pookie swerved sharply to cut off a Prius. He probably did that on purpose. He wasn't a fan of green energy, green technology, or anything else green that didn't come complete with the face of a dead president. Pooks, anyone ever tell you that you drive like shit? I may have heard that once or twice, Bri-Bri, although I stand by my theory that feces can neither apply for nor pass a driver's license exam. He accelerated through a yellow turning red. Don't worry, God loves me. Your imaginary sky daddy is going to keep you safe. Of course, Pookie said. I'm one of the chosen ones. If we get into an accident, though, I can't say what it'll do for you. You atheists are a bit lower on the miracle depth chart. Pookie unexpectedly slowed and got into the left turn lane at O'Farrell. They were supposed to start the day at 850 Bryant, police headquarters. For that, they'd stay on Van Ness for another four blocks. Where are we going? Someone found a body this morning, Pookie said. 537 Jones Street, kind of a big deal. Remember the name Paul Maloney? Ah, it rings a bell, but I can't place it. How about Father Paul Maloney? No shit, the child molester. Pookie nodded. Child molester is too nice a word for the guy. Was too nice a word, I mean. He was murdered last night. Call him what he was, a rapist. San Francisco hadn't escaped the wave of accusations that had crashed into the Catholic Church. Maloney first came to attention because he helped cover up early accusations against other priests who were clearly guilty. As more and more adults came forward about what had happened to them as children, the reasons for Maloney's efforts became clear. He wasn't just protecting pedophiles. He was one himself. Investigations ensued, producing enough clear-cut evidence that Maloney was finally defrocked. It didn't surprise Brian that someone had killed the man. That didn't make it right, not by any stretch but it wasn't exactly a shocker. Wait a minute, Brian said. Time of death? Where it is about 3 or 4 a.m. So why didn't we get called in? That's what I'd like to know, Pookie said. We're temporarily assigned to days and all, but the Maloney murder is just as high profile as Oblomowitz. The press is going to circle jerk all over this one. Circle jerk might not be the best metaphor, considering. Sorry, Mr. Sensitive, Pookie said. I'll refrain from sexual innuendo. Who got the case? Verdi. Brian nodded. No wonder Pookie wanted to get to the scene. Polyester Rich. Nice. Your favorite guy. I love him so. So we're driving to the crime scene to which we're not assigned to be a pain in Verdi's ass. You're very deductive, Pookie said. They should make you a cop or something. A murder scene. In daylight. That might bring about an uncomfortable situation Brian desperately wanted to avoid. Any word on who the Emmy is for this? Don't know, Pookie said. But you can't avoid the girl forever, Brian. She's a medical examiner. You're a homicide cop. Those things go together like chocolate and peanut butter. It's just been dumb luck she hasn't been at one of our scenes in the past six months. Maybe we'll luck out and Robin Robin Bo Bobbin's pretty little face will be perched over the dead body. Brian shook his head before he realized he was doing it. I wouldn't call that lucky. You really should give her a call. And you really should mind your own business. He didn't want to think about Robin Hudson. Time to change the subject. Verdi's still working with Bobby Pigeon. Verdi and the Birdman. Sadly, that would be a pretty kick-ass name for a cop show. But Verdi is just plain ugly, and they don't make primetime dramas about stoner cops. Pookie turned left on Jones 
This part of the city was a mix of buildings, two stories up to five or six, most built in the 1930s or 1940s, and with the city's trademark angled bay windows. Just half a block away, three black and whites blocked the area. Pookie reached his hand out the window to place the portable bubble light on top of the Buick, then pulled a little closer and double-parked. This case should be ours, he said as he got out. Especially if this is some vigilante bullshit. I know, I know, Brian said. Rule of law and all that. 537 Jones Street was a two-story building sandwiched between a parking garage and a five-story apartment complex. Half of 537 was a locksmith, the other half a mail services building. Brian saw little movement inside the buildings. Up above, however, he saw bits of motion. Pookie pointed up. The goddamn roof? Brian nodded. Curiouser and curiouser. A whiff of something strange tickled Brian's nose. There, then gone. They ducked under police tape. The uniforms smiled at Pookie, nodded at Brian. Pookie waved to each, calling them by name. Brian knew their faces, but most times, names were beyond him. They entered the building, found the stairs, and headed up. Pookie and Brian stepped onto a flat roof painted in many gloopy layers of light gray. A morning breeze hit them from behind, snapping their clothes just a little. Rich Verdi and Bobby Birdman Pigeon stood near the body. Fortunately, the Emmy was not a hot little Asian woman with her long black hair done up in a tight bun. It was a silver-haired man who moved with the stiff slowness of age. He was squatting on his heels, examining some detail of the deceased. Light-colored roofs aren't a good complement to splattered blood. Long brown lines and streaks marked the rough gray paint, creating a Jackson Pollock canvas of death and dirt. The body lay twisted in a rather unnatural position. The deceased's legs looked broken, both forelegs and femurs. Wow, Brian said. Someone had it in for that guy. Pookie put on his aviator sunglasses, then feathered back his heavy black hair. He'd started doing that since he began the series Bible. Hollywood wasn't calling yet, but Pookie Chang would be ready when it did. Had it in for a child rapist? Gee, Bri Bri, I can't imagine a connection like that. What's under the tarp, I wonder? Pookie pointed to the right of the body. A blue police-issue tarp flapped in the light morning breeze, its corners held down by duct tape. The tarp lay flat against the roof, no room for body-sized lumps, or even severed limb-sized lumps beneath it. Some of the streaks of dried brown blood led under the blue material. The wind caught an edge of the tarp, just a little, lifting it. Like the flash of a fan dancer, Brian saw a here-then-gone glimpse of what was underneath. Was that a drawing of some kind? Hey, Pookie said. The M.E. Is that old man Matt's? Brian nodded as soon as Pookie said the name. Yeah, that's the Silver Eagle, all right. I haven't seen him outside the M.E.'s office in, like, five years or so. That pisses me off, Pookie said. I mean, even more than before. Did you know Metz was a consultant on that Dirty Harry reboot? Metz knows Hollywood types, and Verdi gets to work with him? Verdi is a pig fucker. Metz wore a blue uniform jacket, gold braid around the cuffs, two rows of polished brass buttons down the chest. Most of the people from the medical examiner's office wore windbreaker jackets for pickups, but not Metz. He still sported the same formal attire that had been de rigueur for his department back in the day. Metz had been the main guy in the M.E.'s office for 30 years, 
He was a law enforcement legend. When he walked into a courtroom, lawyers from both sides trembled. Under examination, he often made lawyers look like idiots. He'd written textbooks. He'd been consulted by some of the world's top crime writers. What Metz didn't do anymore, though, was go out into the field. The guy was pushing 70. Even the great ones have limits. I'm pissed. You ever see Metz in a courtroom? He's so effing cool. And he's the only one with a better nickname than you. Some people in the department called Brian the Terminator. I'm half of Schwarzenegger's size, and I don't look anything like him. It's not about the looks, dummy. It's because you kill people, Pookie said. That, and you have all the emotional response of a used Duracell. Don't be so sensitive. People only say it because they respect you. Pookie would think that. He saw the world through rose-colored glasses. Pookie didn't seem to hear the condescending tone with which people used the nickname. Some guys in the department thought Brian was trigger-happy, a cop who used the gun as a default action instead of as a last resort. I'd rather you didn't use that name, okay? Pookie shrugged. Well, work as long as Mets and get that fabuloso gray do, and maybe they'll call you the Silver Eagle instead of him. I mean, look at that hair. Home Slice looks like a walking shampoo commercial. Mets looked up from the body. He stared at Brian and Pookie for a second, gave a single nod, chin down, pause, chin up, then went back to work. He's so cool, Pookie said. I'd like to be as cool as that when I'm his age, but I think I'll be busy filling my pants and drooling on myself. Everyone has to have goals, Pooks. True. Oh, that reminds me, later I'll tell you about my stock tip. Depends adult undergarments. An aging boomer population makes that stock gold. Brown gold, Brian. Not now, Brian said. What the hell is that under the tarp? Rich Verdi looked up from the body and locked eyes with Brian and Pookie. He shook his head. It didn't take advanced skills to read his lips. These fucking guys. Pookie waved, high and happy. Morning, Rich! Hell of a day, ain't it? Rich walked over. Birdman followed, already shaking his head slowly and rolling his eyes. An odder couple you could not find. Rich Verdi was pushing 60. He'd been busting ass back when Brian and Pookie were in diapers. Verdi still dressed in the cheap polyester suits that had been in style when he'd made his bones 30 years earlier. His pencil mustache just screamed douchebag. Birdman had been promoted from Vice just a few weeks earlier. With his scraggly brown beard, brown knit hat, jeans, and tan Carhartt jacket, he looked more like someone who would be the arrestee than the arrestor. Verdi walked right up to Pookie until they almost touched noses. Chang, Verdi said. What the fuck are you two cocksuckers doing here? Pookie smiled, reached into his pocket, pulled out a small plastic case and gave it an audible rattle. Tic-tac? Verdi's eyes narrowed. Pookie leaned to the left, gave an upward nod to Bobby. Hey there, Birdman! Sup, Birdman said. He smiled. The morning sun glinted off his gold front left incisor. Bobby, don't talk to this asshole, Verdi said. Clauser, Chang, get your asses the fuck out of here! Pookie laughed. <laughs> you kiss your mother with that mouth? No, but I kissed yours, Verdi said. With tongue. Far as you know, I'm your daddy. If so, I thank God that chronic halitosis isn't congenital. Pookie leaned to the right, looked over Verdi's right shoulder. 
I see the Silver Eagle came out for this one. That's good, Rich. That means everything will be ship-shape when Brian and I take over. Verdi pointed to the roof door. Get lost! The wind reversed direction, bringing with it that smell. Urine. Urine and something else. Jeez, Pookie said. Speaking of the pens, did someone forget theirs today? Birdman nodded. The purr pissed on him, man. Eh? Pretty messed up, huh? Verdi turned. Shut the fuck up, Bobby! Bobby held up his hands, palms out. He walked back to Metz and Paul Maloney's body. Hey, Brian said. You guys smell that? Not the piss. That other smell. Pookie and Verdi both sniffed, thought about it, then shook their heads. How could they not smell that? Pookie offered Verdi the Tic Tacs again. Verdi just glared. Pookie shrugged and put them away. Look, polyester, do me a favor and be thorough with your report, okay? Once the chief sees the Vic's name, you know she's going to give the case to us. We'd hate to have to call you to fill in the blanks. Verdi smiled, shook his head. Not this time, Chang. Zhao put us on this case herself. I wouldn't rock the boat on this one if I was you. Pookie's ever-present, condescending grin faded a bit. He was eyeing Verdi up, seeing if the man was telling the truth. The roof suddenly shifted. Brian stumbled left, trying to keep his balance. Pookie caught him, steadied him. Bri, Bri, you okay? Brian blinked, rubbed his eyes. Yeah, just got dizzy for a second. Verdi sneered. Take some advice, Terminator. Save the bottle for off-duty time. Verdi turned and walked back to the body. Brian stared after the man. I hate that name. It's only funny when I use it, Pookie said. Bri, Bri, I want to go on record that I am officially unhappy with this staffing decision. Zhao's call, Brian said. You know that means we have to accept it. Pookie, of course, knew no such thing. He'd be angling for the case nonstop, no matter how exhausting that became to Brian. Come on, Brian said. We have to get to the hall. Pookie adjusted his sunglasses and refeathered his hair. Fine by me, Bri Bri. Can't really tell which one of them stinks like piss anyway. Brian went down the steps first, that smell still tickling his nose. He was careful to keep a hand on the rail. have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.